My name is Dustin Lewis, and I'm the research director for Harvard Law School's program on international law and armed conflict. In my lecture today, I will seek to explain some of the key legal aspects concerning the end of an armed conflict under international law. A starting point is that international law lays down numerous obligations that apply at or after the end of conflict. These obligations span such diverse matters as, for example, protections for prisoners of war until their final release and repatriation, as well as clearance of explosive remnants of war. Another set of issues concerns how to detect when an armed conflict has ended and how to ascertain the points at which various aspects of the associated legal framework cease to be applicable in respect of the conflict. In sum, in those connections, international law provides no general legal yardstick to determine the end of all armed conflicts. Nevertheless, depending partly on how the conflict is categorized, international law does set out several tests to help us ascertain when a specific armed conflict is ending, or has ended, and when the legal framework of armed conflict ceases to be applicable in relation to it. But before delving into these particular legal aspects, it may be worth highlighting some of the circumstances arising in several of today's numerous armed conflicts. These circumstances can present challenges to interpreting and applying those legal yardsticks. Complex political negotiations and fluctuating levels of military activity often take place in contexts characterized by a lack of reliable information, including in some cases an influx of misinformation or disinformation. Further, at least a handful of states apparently envisage an era of mere persistent conflict, blending what might be conceptualized as police and belligerent powers against entities characterized as terrorist networks, some of which purportedly operate from multiple states. In addition, numerous contemporary armed conflicts have involved armed, armed enmities marked by intermittent violence, protracted occupation, or unstable ceasefires. Certain conflicts have been frozen by armed interventions by external entities. As another example, Simultaneous, overlapping, or parallel armed conflicts may exist in respect of a certain context. Moreover, challenges in establishing control by one party over another for purposes of conflict classification or attributing responsibility may also contribute to difficulties in this connection. Further, so far as I can detect, states, and as relevant, non-state actors, are often reluctant to articulate and disseminate clear parameters or indicators to determine with whether an armed conflict has met its purportedly legitimate purposes. A final example relates to one of the most intricate and most significant questions facing those of us who are concerned about legal parameters related to deterring and ending wars. That question is how to help bring armed conflicts, perhaps especially those initiated through grave legal violations, to durable, peaceful settlements in a manner that promotes respect for the complex of implicated legal rules. I'll briefly offer one example among many others. Under provision of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and at least arguably under a similar rule under customary international law, a treaty is void if its conclusion has been procured by the threat or use of force in violation of the principles of international law embodied in the Charter of the United Nations. 
This provision has been interpreted by certain scholars as posing the question whether a legally binding peace treaty is capable of emerging from the legal war. Depending on the context, therefore, it may be necessary to determine how to harmonize efforts to secure peace with aspects of the legal framework aimed at deterring illegal wars and avoiding legal effects that might otherwise flow from such wars. Now, with those wider contextual elements in mind, in the rest of my lecture, I will cover three sets of issues. First, I'll briefly enumerate ways that an armed conflict might end. Second, I will outline certain legal yardsticks that have been employed to ascertain when an armed conflict is terminated, or at least when the associated legal framework ceases to be applicable in respect of the conflict. Notably, the method, or in certain cases methods, through which an armed conflict may end might turn in part on the associated legal framework. And yet understanding the precise contours and linkages between these methods and yardsticks can pose certain interpretive challenges. Third, I will briefly sketch some of the specific protections applicable at or after the end of an armed conflict. And finally, I'll conclude with a few brief remarks addressed to those concerned with strengthening the capacity of international law to bring armed conflicts to durable, peaceful settlements. Now, I do not aim to be exhaustive and will instead seek only to illustrate some key aspects. Moreover, I will not address the various aspects of the legal framework that are applicable outside of periods of armed conflict, such as those related to training armed forces and distributing the four Geneva Conventions of 1949 in times of peace. I will draw an analysis that I've undertaken with my colleagues, Professor Naz Mojirzadeh and Professor Gabriela Bloom, as well as with several researchers. Of course, I'm speaking only for myself today. My lecture reflects research conducted through the fall of 2022. I'm grateful to the assistance of the staff of the UN Audiovisual Library for their kind and professional assistance in administering this lecture. Regarding terminology, I will use the term International Humanitarian Law, or IHL, to refer to the principal field of public international law applicable in relation to situations of armed conflict. Sometimes this field is referred to as the law of armed conflict or the use in bello, among other denominations. Other fields of international law, including international human rights law, international criminal law, and the law of neutrality may also be of relevance with respect to some of the issues that I plan to cover. And as a final introductory remark, I note that my lecture is based on a review of sources and other materials in English and French. I regret the lack of a broader examination of materials in other languages. So now, I will briefly set out a classical legal formula regarding how wars terminate. As with many such formulas, this one is only partly accurate at best. Under this traditional narrative, an armed conflict ends with an adversary, when an adversary capitulates or when both parties cease to engage in hostilities, whichever is earlier. A defeated party cedes any control it may have exercised over territory. According to this formula, such a factual end of the fighting is accompanied by a binding agreement that reflects the will of the parties and that is negotiated, committed to, and implemented by all relevant parties. In upholding that agreement, a situation of peaceful relations is fully restored between the previously warring parties, including, as warranted, by providing or renouncing reparations claims. Yet that sequence rarely occurs in the vast majority of today's numerous armed conflicts. To understand how contemporary armed conflicts might end, it is helpful to clarify that, from a legal perspective, 
armed conflicts are typically classified as either international or non-international in character. Other lectures and the UN Audiovisual Library explain these issues in greater depth. As I will discuss, different legal yardsticks apply concerning the end of different kinds of armed conflicts. On one hand, international armed conflicts typically involve two or more state parties as adversaries. On the other hand, non-international armed conflicts typically involve at least one state party fighting against a non-state organized armed group, or two or more non-state parties engaged as adversaries against each other. In addition to the characterization of an armed conflict as international or non-international, other factors might complicate detecting the end of a particular conflict. Nevertheless, certain methods or modalities through which an armed conflict might terminate can be identified through an examination of international practice and scholarly discourse. I will first briefly outline approaches concerning the end of international armed conflicts, and then I will turn to examples concerning the end of non-international armed conflicts. For both categories, it might be necessary to combine two or more methods to terminate a particular conflict. In terms of international armed conflicts, it may be useful to start by outlining three related notions. One is the notion of international armed conflict itself. This seems to often function as a kind of umbrella concept. A second is a state of war in the legal sense. Few, if any, contemporary conflicts are apparently treated by the parties or by state, other states as giving rise to a formal state of war. Nevertheless, at least certain authors contend that the concept has not been extinguished. At least a third concept is a belligerent occupation. At least under an article laid down in the regulations annexed to the Fourth Hague Convention of 1907, territory is considered occupied when it is actually placed under the authority of the hostile army. The occupation extends only to the territory where such authority has been established and can be exercised. So far as I can tell, both a state of war in a legal sense and a belligerent occupation are typically framed as falling under the wider contemporary notion of international conflict. An examination of practice in literature suggests at least five modalities or methods to legally terminate an international armed conflict. One is a peace agreement between the parties to the conflict. Another is an armistice agreement. A third is implied mutual consent. A fourth method is a binding decision of the UN Security Council. And a fifth method is deliratio. For its part, deliratio has been characterized by certain authors as constituting a factual condition in which a belligerent suffers total military defeat and controls none of its territory. The defeated belligerent's governing institutions have ceased to function no remnants of the national government and armed forces survive outside the country, and no other state continues to fight on its behalf. Regarding a state of war, certain authors have argued that a state of war in a legal sense may be terminated through various methods as well. Those possibilities have been said to include adopting and implementing a treaty of peace or an armistice agreement, implied mutual consent, a unilateral declaration a binding decision of the UN Security Council, or as a result of deliratio of one of the belligerent parties. Finally, means that have been identified to bring about the complete end of a belligerent or military occupation have been said to include a treaty of peace or other peace agreement, prescription, withdrawal from occupied territory, or a binding decision of the UN Security Council. Prescription in this context has been said in literature to relate to acquisition of title 
by a state that exhibits a continuous and peaceful display of state authority during a long period of time where such possession is uncontested through presumed acquiescence. Such a notion of prescription is apparently theoretically possible only, if it is possible at all, under very strict conditions. Those conditions are that the war is terminated, hostilities are long over, but the actual occupation continues as before without the displaced sovereign or anybody else challenging this reality. Some ambiguity appears to lie in the current international legal position of armistices and ceasefires in relation to armed conflict termination. The primary source of confusion concerns whether such agreements may only temporarily halt hostilities or whether they may also terminate the armed conflict within such hostilities or occurring. Traditionally, armistices were conceptualized as suspending, for a time, hostilities between the warring parties. Positions espoused in recent years by certain states align with this approach, according to which an armistice is not a partial or temporary peace and instead denotes only the suspension of military operations to the extent agreed by the parties to the conflict. Yet at least since the World War II cases of Italy, Romania, and Hungary, at least some armistices have been interpreted to have effectively functioned as armed conflict terminating instruments. Additional examples of armistices purportedly functioning in this way have been set out in literature as well. Considering these various approaches, from my perspective, this issue concerning the status of, status of an armistice remains unsettled under international law as it stands today. Now, as with international armed conflict, several methods exist through which a non-international armed conflict might terminate. And also, as with international armed conflicts, more than one modality might be involved in terminating a non-international armed conflict. Some of the ways to bring about the end of a non-international armed conflict that emerge through an examination of practice and literature include the adoption and implementation of a peace agreement, the incapacitation or dissolution of a non-state party, such as through military defeat, surrender, or other means, the establishment of a new government by an insurrectional or other movement that was a party to the conflict, the establishment of a new state by such a movement, or by a binding decision of the UN Security Council. Having briefly discussed aspects of how international and non-international armed conflicts might terminate, I'll now turn to certain international legal yardsticks that have been developed to ascertain when the associated legal framework ceases to be applicable in relation to a conflict. I'll focus first on certain legal formulations pertaining to international armed conflicts. One such legal yardstick is the general close of military operations. That formulation has been laid down in two treaties. The first instance concerns the end of military operations other than in a belligerent occupation. The Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, which relates to protections for civilians, provides that in the territory of the parties to the conflict, the application of that instrument shall cease on the general close of military operations. Another instance is found in the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions. In particular, that instrument provides that the application of the Geneva Conventions and the first additional protocol shall cease in the territory of parties to the conflict on the general close of military operations. However, neither of those treaties expressly defines the term general close of military operations. We might therefore look to certain interpretive practice to ask, help ascertain the term's content. 
as far as I can detect, relatively few states have set out expressly their views on this issue. Be that as it may, at least according to the Law of War Manual, authored by the United States Department of Defense's Office of the General Counsel in December of 2016, in most cases, the general codes of military operations, in the sense of this provision of the Fourth Geneva Convention, will be the final end of all fighting between all those concerned. For its part, the International Committee of the Red Cross defines, in this context, military operations as the movements, maneuvers, and actions of any sort carried out by the armed forces with a view to combat. According to the ICRC's 2016 updated commentary on the First Geneva Convention, even in the absence of active hostilities, military operations, such as redeploying troops along the border to build up military capacity, or mobilizing or deploying troops for defensive or offensive purposes, will justify maintaining the classification of the situation as an international armed conflict. A second legal yardstick concerning the end of international armed conflict is the notion of reaching a general conclusion of peace. The International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, often referred to by the initialism ICTY, set out that standard in its influential 1995 interlocutory appeal decision in the Tadic case. There, the ICTY appeals chamber held that an international armed conflict exists whenever there is a resort to armed force between states IHL applies from the initiation of such armed conflicts and extends beyond the cessation of hostilities until a general conclusion of peace is reached. Until that moment, IHL continues to apply in the whole territory of the warring states whether or not actual combat takes place there. Numerous ICTY trial chambers subsequently adopted that approach as well. Further, the ICTY's general conclusion of peace formulation concerning the end of application of IHL to an international armed conflict is endorsed in the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense's The Joint Service Manual of the Law of Armed Conflict published in 2004. The authors of that manual clarify that, at least in their view, this, this ICTY formulation does not necessarily entail the conclusion of a formal peace treaty. With respect to the end of a military occupation, three legal tests, namely the termination of the occupation, the duration of the occupation, and once again, the general close of military operations have been laid down in IHL instruments. For its part, the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 provides that, in the case of occupied territory, the application of that instrument shall cease one year after the general close of military operations. That same paragraph also lays down that the occupying power shall be bound for the duration of the occupation to the extent that such power exercises the functions of government in such territory by the provisions of certain enumerated articles. These articles contain obligations pertaining, for example, to humane treatment, to rights as against change by annexation or arrangement with the local authorities so long as occupation lasts, to transfers, evacuation, and deportation, to facilitating relief programs, to criminal proceedings, and to access by protecting powers and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Meanwhile, the first additional protocol stipulates that the application of the Geneva Conventions in that protocol shall cease in the case of occupied territories on the termination of the occupation. Thus, for contracting parties to the first additional protocol, 
though not, at least as a matter of treaty law, for states that are not contracted into that instrument, the temporal application of the Fourth Geneva Convention in its entirety is extended until the termination of the occupation, at which point the instrument ceases to be applicable. Stepping back for a moment, the way that I understand it is that the architects of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 left open the possibility, though removed the need, for the subjective and formal political recognition of war as a legal matter. In doing so, they meant to make it easier to ascertain, as an objective and factual matter, when IHL applied so that it would be harder for states to evade it. From my perspective, that was a laudable goal and an understandable strategic move following the carnage of World War II. And in respect of many subsequent conflicts, that goal was at least partially realized. But delinking the political recognition of war from its pursuit has also arguably inflicted certain costs, not least on civilians subject to ongoing measures of war. Indeed, the objective fact-based model exposes a weakness where a relevant political authority refuses to recognize the end of the conflict, as is the case concerning multiple contemporary international armed conflicts. I will now address IHL provisions concerning the cessation of application of a portion of IHL in relation to a non-international armed conflict. To help lay the groundwork, I will first mention a few aspects related to ascertaining when a non-international armed conflict comes into existence. Article 3, common to the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, expressly applies in the case of an armed conflict not of an international character occurring in the territory of one of the high contracting parties. The second additional protocol of 1977 sets out to develop and supplement Common Article 3 and to do so without modifying Common Article 3's existing conditions of application. In other words, the second additional protocol's field of application is generally limited to certain armed conflicts not of an international character. In particular, that instrument shall apply to all armed conflicts which are not covered by Article 1 of the first additional protocol and which take place in the territory of a high contracting party between its armed forces and dissident armed forces, or other organized armed groups which, under responsible command, exercise such control over part of its territory as to enable them to carry out sustained and concerted military operations and to implement the protocol. Another provision in the second edition protocol clarifies that the instrument shall not apply to situations of internal disturbances and tensions such as riots, isolated and sporadic acts of violence, and other acts of a similar nature, as not being armed conflicts. In the same 1995 TANIS decision that I mentioned earlier, the appeals chamber of the ICTY held, with respect to the material, temporal, and geographical scope of application of IHL to internal armed conflict, to internal conflicts, that an internal armed conflict exists whenever there is protracted armed violence between governmental authorities and organized armed groups or between such groups within a state. Subsequently, the ICTY and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda elaborate factors and indicators aimed at ascertaining the two cumulative constituent elements necessary, at least in those tribunals' views, to determine the existence of a non-international armed conflict. The first element is the existence of a sufficiently organized armed group or groups, and the second element is the existence of sufficiently intense hostilities. Notably, neither Common Article 3 nor the Second Additional Protocol lays down an express formulation to ascertain when the respective provision or instrument ceases to be applicable. During the drafting of the Second Additional Protocol, an amendment was proposed that the application of that protocol should cease 
upon the general cessation of military operations. But the delegates did not adopt that proposal. In my view, the absence of such treaty-based tests has unfortunately contributed to a measure of uncertainty and instability from a legal perspective. Now I will turn to the primary judicially configured general international legal formulation on the end of applicability of IHL to a non-international armed conflict. That legal yardstick is the achievement of a peaceful settlement, which is sometimes apparently also formulated as a general conclusion of peace. Indeed, in the same 1995 decision, the appeals chamber of the ICTY held in addressing the case of internal armed conflicts, that IHL applies from the initiation of such armed conflicts and extends beyond the cessation of hostilities until a peaceful settlement is achieved. Until that moment, IHL continues to apply in the whole territory under the control of the party, whether or not actual combat takes place there. The chamber found accordingly that certain crimes in that case had been committed in the context of an armed conflict. The chamber continued by observing that notwithstanding various temporary ceasefire agreements, no general conclusion of peace has brought military operations in the region to a close. Numerous ICTY trial chambers and the court's appeals chamber have subsequently endorsed that yardstick, namely the test of, apply of IHL applying to a non-international armed conflict until a peaceful settlement is achieved. Further, a trial chamber in the Air National Criminal Court adopted the peaceful settlement formulation articulated by the ICTY concerning at least the end of applicability of IHL to a non-international armed conflict. Finally, in this connection, in outlining sequential phases concerning the end of armed conflict in Sierra Leone, the Appeals Chamber of the Special Court for Sierra Leone utilized the peaceful settlement formulation in the sense that the peace agreement phase signifies the end of armed conflict by means of a peaceful settlement. What might be the exact contours of this legal yardstick? Well, certain authors have argued that the classic method of reaching a peaceful settlement in relation to a non-international armed conflict is through a formal agreement sanctioning the definitive cessation of hostilities. It may therefore be useful at this point to make a few remarks regarding peace agreements. In relation to non-international armed conflict, peace agreements are commonly conceived as agreements concluded with a view to bringing the conflict to an end between a non-state party to the conflict, on the one hand, and either one or more states or one or more non-state parties or a combination thereof, on the other hand. Numerous examples of such agreements exist. These agreements are, distinguish are distinguishable from peace treaties in a strict sense, which have a primary functioning of terminating a state of war in the legal sense, because to the extent that it remains valid at all, the, st the state of war concept is applicable only in relation to international armed conflicts, and is thus foreign to non-international armed conflicts. Certain authors caution that it is important to bear in mind that the mere adoption of a peace agreement, while indicating a certain intention of the parties to a non-international armed conflict to end the conflict, does not put an end to the existence of the conflict and the applicability of the international legal framework pertaining to it. The idea espoused by those authors is that the formulation only holds true to the extent that the peaceful settlement is not a matter of mere agreement but is also an accurate description of the factual situation on the ground. Meanwhile, a handful of authors have argued that the formulation is too strict for non-international armed conflict and is not supported by IHL. For our part, my colleagues and I, drawing from existing international law and scholarly arguments, have postulated and scrutinized 
four theories on the vanishing point of the application of the international legal framework pertaining to non-international armed conflict. What we term the two-way ratchet theory affixes that vanishing point to the moment that at least one of the constituent elements of the conflict, namely the intensity of hostilities or the organization of the non-state armed group, ceases to exist. Under what we call the no more combat measures theory, the vanishing point applies upon the general close of military operations as characterized by the cessation of actions of the armed forces with a view to combat. Pursuant to what we term the no reasonable risk of resumption theory, the vanishing point is the moment that there is no reasonable risk of hostilities resuming. And finally, under what we frame as the state of war throwback theory, the vanishing point is latched to the achievement of a peaceful settlement between the formerly warring parties. Now zooming out for a moment, there is no doubt from my perspective that the legal yardstick that affixes the end of application of IHL to a non-international armed conflict to the moment that a peaceful settlement is achieved is binding at least in respect of relevant international criminal proceedings. Yet whether or not it is binding more widely in respect of all non-international armed conflicts is a matter that merits close attention. The test privileges legal clarity, the ongoing applicability of IHL, and continuous war crimes jurisdiction. But the demand for a final and comprehensive peace settlement will rarely be met, from what I can tell, in many contemporary non-international armed conflicts. In the meantime, the continued applicability of IHL allows parties to access international legal claims to employ, in many respects, harsher and more destructive military action and other coercive measures than would be tolerated solely under many peacetime legal regimes, including international human rights law. I'm now going to briefly sketch some of the specific protections applicable at or after the end of an armed conflict. As with the other sections of my lecture, I do not aim here to be exhaustive, instead aim to illustrate some examples. Additional obligations relate to such aspects as prosecuting or extraditing persons accused of grave breaches, accounting for missing persons, making or renouncing reparations claims in respect of IHL violations, and accounting for the dead. Various IHL treaties contain formulations concerning the point or points at which deprivation of or other restrictions on liberty in connection with the non-conflict shall cease. These instruments also set out the extent of ongoing protections beyond the termination of the relevant conflict. The first Geneva Convention of 1949, which protects wounded and sick members of the armed forces in the field, is applicable in respect of a protected person who has fallen into the hands of the enemy until that person's final repatriation. Similar stipulations are contained in the third Geneva Convention of 1949, which protects prisoners of war, and in the fourth Geneva Convention and the first additional protocol with respect to protected persons as defined in those instruments. For its part, the second additional protocol, which as I mentioned earlier, is applicable to certain non-international conflicts, entails a similar protection with respect to people who have been deprived of liberty or whose liberty has been restricted for reasons related to a conflict. The basic notion in all these examples is that covered persons shall continue to benefit from the relevant provisions until their final release, repatriation, or reestablishment, as the case may be, even if the armed conflict has ended prior to that release, repatriation, or reestablishment. As regards amnesties, a provision of the Second Initial Protocol 
provides that at the end of hostilities, the authorities in power shall endeavor to grant the broadest possible amnesty to persons who have participated in the armed conflict or those deprived of their liberty for reasons related to the conflict, whether they are interned or detained. Meanwhile, as laid down in the Hague Regulations of 1907, certain obligations arising in connection with the belligerent occupation that deal with submarine cables and private property susceptible to direct military use are applicable when peace is made. In a somewhat similar vein, a set of provisions in Protocol 2 of the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons of 1980, as amended in 1996, expressly affix certain obligations concerning mines, booby traps, and certain other devices to the cessation of active hostilities. Similarly, with respect to explosive remnants of war, under Protocol 5 of the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, a number of obligations arise after the cessation of active hostilities. As a final set of examples, several IHL treaties contain provisions concerning relations between the end of a conflict and the denunciation of or withdrawal from the respective instrument. Two points bear emphasis in this connection. First, all the relevant treaties limit the effect of a denunciation, as the case may variously be, until after peace has been concluded, until after operations connected with the release and repatriation of the, person, of the persons protected by the instrument have been completed, or until the end of the armed conflict. Second, denunciation or withdrawal from an IHL treaty would not impair the duty of the party to fulfill the obligation to which the state is otherwise subject, for example, under identical or similar rules of customary IHL or general principles of law. I will now conclude with brief remarks addressed to those concerned about strengthening the capacity of international law to bring armed conflicts to durable, peaceful settlements. Unfortunately, many contemporary armed conflicts, so often marked as they are by extensive death, destruction, upheaval, austerity, subjugation, and despair, extend for years, even decades. It is imperative, I believe, to urgently bring these conflicts to enduring peaceful settlements in conformity with the principles of justice and international law. From my perspective, a starting point is that international lawyers can and should do much more to help political, military, humanitarian, human rights, and other concerned actors further elaborate upon the criteria pertaining to the end of armed conflicts. Those efforts should encompass developing principal linkages for ascertaining when an armed conflict has ended as a factual matter, determining when a conflict should end as a normative matter, and discerning when a portion of the international legal framework of armed conflict ceases to be applicable in relation to a particular conflict as a legal matter. Fleshing out the criteria for the end of an armed conflict is a considerable challenge, and those looking to do so must address myriad issues and concerns. Many of the problems in this area might be characterized as first and foremost of a strategic or political character. Nevertheless, as part of a broader effort to strengthen international law's claim to guide behavior in relation to war, and to protect affected populations, international lawyers must address the current confusion and challenges that so often surround the end of conflicts. I kindly thank you for your time and attention.